everyone, my name is Christine, and you're listening to Season 2, Looking to Tomorrow Politic Podcast. What you'll be expecting from this season is we'll be focusing on seven relevant topics that matter within the province of Ontario. And so, continuing on, in our first episode, we'll be focusing on how we move and get around. Be sure to sit back and enjoy. And actually, before doing that, be sure to check our previous episodes from Seasons 1 called This is Toronto. Alright, have fun. Welcome to the show. Could you please introduce yourself, where do you come from, and what do you do there? Okay, well thanks for asking. Uh, My name is Vincent, and I've been a member of TTC Riders since, I'll say, mid-2014. So for quite some time. Uh, TTC Mm -hmm. Riders has been around since before my time. Uh, I got founded in 2010 as an offshoot of the Toronto Environmental Alliance and the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly. So right from the very beginning, we had both a a pro-worker style of uh, advocacy as well as a pro-environment style of advocacy. Uh, So since I've been a member, um, we fought uh, for a number of things. We've continued to fight for lower fares and better TTC service. Uh, We've also fought for an expansion of rapid transit in the suburbs. And uh, most recently, uh, launched a campaign against uh, Doug Ford's takeover of the subway system, which was successful. So, uh, you know, with the organization, we're still constantly growing new members and constantly uh, becoming more of a force in uh, Toronto's political scene. Public transportation is championed as an important part of the shift towards green modes of transportation. However, the heavy use of diesel powered buses is negatively contributing to climate change. What has made public transportation systems favor buses above other options? Well, it's interesting you asked that question since we're here in Toronto. So as you know, Toronto has one of the only streetcar systems in North America, uh, still remaining. The others are in in Boston, uh, New Orleans, and a few uh, historic streetcar systems that have been restored uh, since the 1960s. So before the 60s, pretty much every city had a streetcar system as a main form of transportation. New York had the subway, it's true, Pretty much everywhere else relied on streetcars uh, for mass transit, uh, and not just large cities. Um, we had streetcar systems in places even as small as Windsor or Cornwall or uh, Leamington, Ontario. So they were a pretty widespread form of transportation. In fact, up until I'd say around the 1930s, the bus was pretty much almost like a Greyhound type service. It was used for intercity uh, routes on the uh, on the new highways. But within towns and cities, you pretty much got around on streetcars. All of that changed uh, after World War II. So I guess I'll break it down this way. So the TTC was a publicly run system from the 1920s onwards. The city owned and operated it. Uh, Many other systems in North America were private. Uh, Sometimes they're run by utility companies like Ontario Ontario Hydro or its predecessor. Uh, Sometimes they were owned by property companies. Uh, like in LA, where they use the streetcars to actually sell homes uh, along the routes. So after World War II, the governments got really into transportation policy, but they tended to favor the car. So in the US, they built the interstate highway system uh, under President Eisenhower. In Ontario, we had the 400 series uh, start to be built. So the 401 was constructed, I think it was finished in 1962, if I'm not mistaken. So you had a lot of public investment 
in car infrastructure. But transit outside of Toronto was private and it couldn't compete. How do you compete against billions of dollars of public money? So these streetcar systems fell into a rapid decline throughout the decade of the 60s. Ultimately, what happened was local governments took them over to save them, to try and maintain some basic level of transit service. But typically, they would shut down the streetcar lines and replace them with buses. Now, the reasons behind this are not even twofold, they're multifold. Uh, to some extent, the bus was actually seen as quote-unquote sexier uh, than the streetcar. It's very different than nowadays when rail is considered the thing that's, that's cool and everyone wants to have. Back then, buses were considered to be sleek, considered to be modern, uh, and every transit system wanted to replace their old clunky streetcars with uh, diesel buses. Secondly, of course, was the issue of cost. So the new publicly run transit systems obviously now are competing for tax money with a host of other infrastructure issues, local roads, schools, what have you. They figured it was cheaper to simply rip out the rails and run buses on roads that you're already building and maintaining. In addition, in theory, you could expand service a lot faster. Build a garage, buy some buses from GM, hire some drivers, congratulations, you have new routes. No need to string wires and, uh, and lay track. So, as you can see, there's a number of issues that contributed to buses being the predominant form of, uh, of transportation uh, across this continent, probably worldwide, uh, to be honest. So what we have now is, is a situation where rail tends to be for high-capacity rapid transit, so a subway or a new light rail system. Local routes tend to be, tend to be bus. Now, Toronto's a little bit different. Uh, we do have a very robust uh, streetcar system in the downtown core. And unlike a lot of other cities, our streetcars aren't just gimmicks or for tourists. They are some of the most heavily used routes in the entire system. And streetcars make sense in an old city like Toronto because they have a high capacity, uh, quite a smooth ride, uh, and generally is more efficient than running a bus down somewhere like Queen Street. You might remember this when they replace streetcars with buses on those streets. It tends to be a complete disaster. But likely, we're not going to see any expansion of the streetcar system uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, politically, it's just a no-go uh, in the suburbs. Uh, to some extent, there's no point in running a Queen Street-style streetcar down a large suburban street. Uh, it, the bus is probably a better way of serving the suburbs with local transit. Um, the TTC did want to expand the streetcar system in the early 2000s. Uh, on some routes like Coxwell or uh, Rogers Road, but that really never went anywhere. So likely, you know, these historical reasons result in us using buses, so likely we're going to be using buses for the foreseeable future. The good news is that even a diesel bus is still more friendly to the environment than uh, people driving their own cars, right? A bus at full capacity takes 70, 75 people. In theory, that's 70 cars that aren't on the road. Uh, so it's much better bang for buck per person carbon emissions than a car or even an Uber or a taxi. Then the TTC is also investing in hybrid technology. So you might have seen them on the road recently. There's a few routes that have uh, they've probably purchased six or seven now uh, hybrid electric buses that have very little emissions uh, at source. So this is great because the plan is to replace the entire fleet with these over the next couple of years, which is amazing. So you're already getting an environmentally friendly mode of transportation that unfortunately does give off emissions 
from the tailpipe like a diesel bus does. So replacing these with a hybrid electric bus is only going to be even better uh, for Toronto's air quality. So, you know, it, it's a step in the right direction. It's something that TTC Riders has uh, been in favor of, of course. Uh, and we're also in favor of just more vehicles on the road, giving more service to, uh, to passengers. So I guess to sum up, it'd be really nice to see more streetcars. Probably not going to see any more streetcar routes, but if we get clean buses, hybrid electric buses and electric streetcars, we're, we're on the way to a zero emission uh, fleet, which is awesome. When we talk about affordability, transportation usually comes after priorities like housing and food. Since 2012, adult cash fares for TTC have increased by 25 cents for a single trip and $30 for a monthly pass. Student fares have also changed by 30 cents cash and $22.15 for a monthly pass. From your expertise, what factors are leading to such big increases? Okay, that's, that's a great question. So the rising cost of transit fares have been really one of the main reasons why TTC Riders continues to fight uh, in this city for, for better transit because I mean, we're an increasingly unequal uh, city. We know we're in the midst of a housing crisis uh, and transit fares are not helping uh, people's, people's budgets. Um, you, you actually might have seen the ads all over the system uh, to combat fare evasion. I mean, the system's desperate for money. And increasingly, they're leaning on transit riders uh, to fund the system. So what you might not know, or maybe you do know, the TTC is actually the least subsidized transit system in North America. I should say major transit system in North America uh, on a per rider basis. So uh, each time you board a bus or a streetcar, the, the fare you pay is actually paying for the majority of your ride. This is unlike in places like Vancouver or Chicago or New York, where a combination of local and uh, regional uh, funding is providing a lot more to the transit system uh, for it to operate on a daily basis. So this means that fares continue to go up because if the subsidy is already low, the costs of running the transit system increase. Um, there's more service, inflation on things like fuel and, and wages uh, continue to go up, maybe with good reason, uh, but right now they're leaning on the riders uh, to essentially fund the system. And this is a problem, it's a huge problem because at the same time, we have a city council, I'm saying a city council for the past 10 years, if not longer, that have continued to trumpet the fact that they've kept property taxes at the same rate as inflation. You gotta think about that for a second. Property taxes for homeowners who are probably already quite well off, uh, considering the rise in property values in the city, they don't get to pay anymore. The transit riders have to pay more. Now in Toronto, we are lucky that we have a lot of people in the transit system of different uh, income levels. By no means do low-income people only ride transit. Some low-income low people have cars and some wealthy people ride the bus. Like it, it does happen. However, it is more likely to see someone who's of more modest means riding the transit system. It's quite unfair that homeowners get a break and transit riders are the ones getting leaned on to, to fund the system. Now, an opponent of what I'm saying could say, well, yes, they're riding it. They should pay to use it, just like you pay to buy a tube of toothpaste. I don't know, something like that. My response and our response as an organization always is, 
transit use benefits people who don't ride transit, right? Every time someone boards a transit vehicle, that's less emissions in the air. That's one less parking spot that's being used. That's one less uh, contributor to uh, growing traffic congestion in this city. So a whole host of things that really help everyone, whether you actually ride the TTC or not. So we've consistently been calling for increase in the city subsidy and reversing uh, some of the more recent fare increases. It would be really great if we could start moving towards free transit, uh, like some cities have done. I think Kansas City was the most recent. And, and don't laugh, they're actually a pretty major city in the US. So if some of these big cities are doing this, why can't we? Why, why are we continuing to lean on transit riders for funding when it should be the general tax base that supports the system? The transit network in Toronto covers virtually every corner in the city. However, the frequency and lengths for trips are very different by neighborhood. A trip from the furthest corner of the city at Rouge Park to downtown can take up to two hours. Why has rapid transit been slow to expand into the suburban areas? Okay, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Rouge Park. I live downtown now, but I grew up in East Scarborough uh, in Guildwood. So I know all about that, uh, that two-hour trip down. I mean, if it was a good day, you could do it in an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, I was lucky enough to live on a frequent bus route, so it wasn't so bad, but it's, it's pretty bad. And it's even worse when you realize that the outskirts of the city are now the last, uh, if you will, bastion of housing that's reasonably affordable for people. It's still not cheap, but reasonably affordable for people. So if you look at a map of Toronto and where, uh, for example, new immigrant families are settling, it's not downtown with some few exceptions. It's in Rexdale, it's in East Scarborough. So it's really urgent that we as a city get transit to these people. So it, it's interesting you mentioned the rapid transit system. So Toronto, or the TTC, back in the day, 80s and 90s, was actually recognized as having a very good bus network in the suburbs. So unlike a lot of places elsewhere on this continent, you actually had frequent buses uh, in the suburbs. So I grew up in East Scarborough. My bus, which is Route 116, is 10 minutes or better all day, uh, well into the night. 2 or 3 a.m. it stops running. That's pretty good, actually. And sort of makes up for the lack of rapid transit uh, in the suburbs. The problem is, these buses are actually popular. They're overcrowded. Uh, the TTC has not purchased enough buses to deal with uh, the demand for ridership. And of course, since transit doesn't have priority on streets, they now are getting stuck in traffic and its service is worsening. So you gotta get rapid transit out there. So why hasn't it happened? Well, the last expansion of the rapid transit system to the suburbs, well, I guess was the subway line to York, which opened in 2017, uh, which was all right. But before that, the earliest was the Scarborough, or the latest was the Scarborough RT, opened in 1985, I wanna say. That's a long time ago, it was before all of us were alive. So that's a huge problem. So why didn't that happen? Well, we stopped expanding the system because of lack of funding. That's a perennial issue uh, in Toronto. Uh, secondly, you had politics. There have been plans to expand the system. Uh, we had a whole series of them from the 80s up until now. Things called Network 2011, which is kind of sad considering 2011 was 10 years ago. Uh, this was supposed to be done by then. It's not done. Uh, we had Transit City, 
which was a light rail plan uh, for Scarborough and for uh, Northern Etobicoke. Uh, that was killed when Doug Ford said that the streets are for cars. Uh, so we've, we've repeatedly had fairly decent ideas to expand the system into the, into the suburbs. Uh, we've had sometimes funding behind these plans and always politics gets in the way. The last vestige of the transit city uh, proposal is the Crosstown, which is currently under construction, although it's delayed again, uh, which is a beautiful uh, result from Metrolinx. But uh, it's under construction, and when it's done, there's going to be transit from Black Creek Drive all the way out to Kennedy Station, which is actually going to be a great thing. It's going to be a wonderful addition to, to the network. Uh, we do have a Finch West LRT, which is under construction now. It's under construction, so probably it's not going to be stopped. Uh, and there was a plan that GTC put out for bus lanes on uh, some suburban streets, Eglinton East, uh, Steeles West, and a few like that, which will finally bring not a subway, not LRT, but transit priority on some of these major roads. So we're, we're, we're getting some movement, and transit riders are pushing for this. Right? When I joined in 2014, GTC Riders, we had a whole campaign against the one-stop Scarborough subway. We wanted to replace that with 50 or something uh, stops of LRT. Fortunately, that didn't work. Uh, politics was against us, and pretty much every elected official in Scarborough saying they want the subway. Of course, it should be illuminating to everyone that these guys don't ride transit, so they don't care. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and politics has really been the deciding issue in whether some of these lower income areas, working class areas, actually get the transit they need. So we can complain about it or we can move forward. So we have to be continually on, on our politicians, uh, watching them, making sure they actually are following through with their promises to finally uh, build these lines that are, that are necessary. Again, we're going to get the Crosstown. We're probably going to get uh, Finch West, so at least there's some expansion to the outer areas of the city. Uh, Rouge Park, it's still going to be waiting. Uh, Lawrence East was supposed to get a bus lane uh, under this plan, so that's, that's something. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it's up to people who live out there to be, to be active and vocal and saying that we are not, we're, we're not going to deal with these long commutes anymore. It's time that Toronto gets serious about building transit, and only people power is going to get that done. Subway closures are annoying to most passengers and confuse many who are visiting the city, but they are necessary to maintain the system. But why have we only started to see a bigger emphasis on maintenance in recent years? So if you're on the Young Line on a weekend and you have to get off at St. Clair Station and get on a super crowded shuttle bus and go all the way north of the 401 to, uh, to Shepherd, you can thank Andy Byford for that. So his idea was instead of doing maintenance in the off hours of the subway from 1.30 to, to 5 or 6, uh, they would have, well, they'd be able to get a lot more done by shutting down uh, for a whole day or sometimes two days. Uh, on the weekend. And this has been happening for the past couple of years and is most noticeable on line one because it's the busiest line. There have been similar shutdowns on, uh, on line two as well. So from a maintenance perspective, it might actually make sense uh, that they do this. Uh, just It stands to reason you have more hours uh, to work with. We at TDC Riders tend to think that this is a real hit to ridership. Because why in their right mind would anyone who has any other choice choose to get on one of those crowded, slow 
uh, shuttle buses. And bear in mind, this is a shutdown that's planned. Not unplanned. These, these shuttle buses are ready, they're lined up. In theory, they know that this is all going to be happening and it still doesn't work properly. So if these shutdowns continue, and it seems, I mean, you can see on the TTC website, there's a whole uh, year's worth of works uh, that are planned. If they're going to continue doing this, we need to see bus lanes on Young or on Bloor when these shuttle buses go into, into effect. How is it that we go from having a rapid transit system that supposedly is faster than driving on those corridors and we replace it with these buses that are stuck in mixed traffic? Imagine a snowstorm. You don't have to imagine. We've had snowstorms. These buses are running. So we're really wondering why the city doesn't have the bravery to, to put in the bus lane, temporary bus lanes, uh, when you're, when you're going to shut down the system. If you're serious about getting people onto transit, these are the things you have to do. And yes, people will complain. But I'd like to point out that each one of those buses is full of 70 people. And the one person in their minivan, I mean, she can or he can uh, complain all they want, but you have more people on your side. So just, just do it. This is our call to say, just do it, implement it. It's really easy to do. Put some pylons down the road and voila, a bus lane. Costs, I don't know how much those pylons cost, not much money. You can do it and they need to. The current provincial government in Ontario removed the emission testing for some vehicles, citing massive improvement by manufacturers to lower emissions. What do you think its impact has been for drivers and transit agencies that maintain older fleets? Well, the removal of, I mean, I'm guessing you're talking about the Ontario Drive Clean program, I and mean, that's been around since oh, I was little, uh, so a long time ago. but. That was a, clearly a populist uh, move on behalf of our premier. Uh, I can't say it was stupid politically. Uh, people have always been complaining about uh, the drive clean program. And again, it, it was a clearly political move designed to keep their uh, popularity high. So in theory, lots has changed since 2001 or whenever the drive clean came into effect. I believe 2001, maybe 2000. Obviously, lots has changed in the way that vehicles of all kinds are manufactured. That's not wrong. What probably would have been a better move if the government was serious about environmental protection would have been simply to update uh, the drive clean program. For example, to change the standards at which body shops would need to outfit people's vehicles uh, to match uh, the standards. Same thing goes for bus purchases, right? I mean, in the province and the city purchase bulk uh, orders of buses, it would be very easy to simply set out in your request to the manufacturer, these vehicles are going to need to meet a certain standard. So I mean, the TTC has gotten rid of its old uh, GM buses, we all have uh, the newer ones from 2003 onwards that I believe are fairly, as diesel goes, fairly environmentally friendly. So yeah, there's been a change in manufacturing, I don't think the government's entirely wrong about that, it was definitely a populist move. Uh, not stupid politically, but there was a better way to, to handle this, and unfortunately, it was dropped. The problem is, it's going to be very, very hard for any future government to bring back these kind of emission standards because the particular evil genius of the populist right almost they have a way of convincing people that they are now their right not to have to have an emissions test uh, on their car. So anyone who wants to put that back in is going to look like a bad guy we're probably not going to see it again. Uh, but the city 
and the province, remember the province buys go buses and whatnot. For those kind of bulk purchases, yes, they can enforce standards upon the manufacturers when they when they put in their order. But we'll probably not see another drive clean program uh, for the next little while. At the same time, Ontario has removed its incentive for electric car purchasing. Across the country, Quebec has one of the highest electric car sales thanks to their rebates. What do you think creates an ideal environment for electric vehicles to prosper in a fossil fuel driven economy? Okay, so that, that's also a really interesting question. Uh, as I said before, from way back at the beginning of our, of our episode, uh, the government in many ways created the fossil fuel economy, right? With, with the massive uh, highway construction program, uh, an emphasis on uh, auto manufacturing as an industrial strategy. And we, in a way, the government created the situation we're in right now. So it only stands to reason that for justice and for environmental, uh, to advance uh, anti-climate change initiatives, that we would absolutely want to nurture um, alternative fuels and uh, that sort of industry uh, in our country, in our province, and also the sales of electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles, and these sorts of things. Because as much as we want most people to be on transit, you're, someone's going to have a car somewhere, or the city has fleets. Uh, for example, of maintenance vehicles and, and vans and there's uh, companies like UPS. So there's a lot of different uh, industries where hybrid technologies and electric uh, electric fuel cells, uh, not really fuel, electric cells, uh, are, are useful uh, to, to have. So the government has a very unique position in that you can offer rebates for, uh, for consumers uh, to incentivize the purchase of individual vehicles like you say, in a fossil fuel economy. But what about, again, like I said, the massive fleets of couriers, uh, UPS, um, all, all these Amazon, uh, private couriers, a contract with Amazon, all of these things. I mean, we could in, both incentivize, I guess using a carrot, but also a stick. So you could heavily tax uh, companies that don't uh, modernize their fleets uh, with modern fuel technologies. And then I guess the third string would be where the fleets are owned by the public sector. So the city has its library vans and, and maintenance vehicles or TTC buses. You can actually invest in uh, new technologies and, and, and again, clean, uh, clean vehicles uh, for your fleets, which kind of creates a nice virtuous cycle because then if there's a big market from Toronto to purchase uh, cargo vans that are electric power, and then manufacturers will sell cargo vans to everybody that are electric power because there's already been massive, massive orders coming from these, from these governments. So, Really, to sum up your question, we, we need to probably copy Quebec's uh, rebate program because it's been very, very successful and it's been uh, noted in the media as well. And then use the government's purchasing power to purchase uh, clean technology vehicles for their fleets uh, and encourage, by both carrot and stick, the private sector to adopt uh, those very same technologies. And we'll do very well. I mean, we, we could be a, a clean vehicle leader uh, worldwide if you wanted to be. I think that's something we need to move towards. While the media reports may place more emphasis on negative aspects of trans transit development, what are some projects that we can celebrate around the country and in the province? Well, for me, one of the most exciting uh, developments in transit in Ontario is the opening of Waterloo Region's ION uh, LRT. So. It was first planned 
honestly, in the, in the late 2000s, faced a lot of opposition from anti-transit campaigners, but they finally, they got it done. Uh, and I had a chance to, to ride that system, and it's, it's beautiful. They're, they use the same uh, cars that Toronto's LRT will use uh, when it finally gets underway. And uh, it's driven ridership in what is a very small city that was very uh, sprawled and, and car dependent. So I think that was a, a huge game changer. And it also showed that transit has a market beyond just the big cities, that even smaller centers can invest in this sort of thing and show huge results. Unfortunately, Hamilton was going to do it and Doug Ford canceled that. Uh, but London, Ontario might get underway this year with constructing their, uh, their BRT system. Also a huge win because it's a smaller city, but potentially a lot of transit riders. Obviously, Conestoga College and Western are there, but also it's an industrial city. It's a growing regional center. You could build, you could build some good transit ridership there if they were to invest in that. So those are some pretty exciting developments that we're seeing uh, in Ontario. Across the country, well, I used to live in Alberta. I mean, I'm from Ontario. I lived in Edmonton for a bit because I was looking for work. And when I was down in Banff, Banff, Alberta, probably one of the most interesting little transit systems uh, that they have. They are a massive tourist destination, obviously, but kind of a rural one. So beforehand, you had just tons of cars uh, entering what is a national park. That was a problem because the Trans-Canada Highway, which bisects the park, actually was interfering with the migration of uh, wildlife and emissions obviously were causing a lot of problems for what's supposed to be a protected uh, wilderness. So they built a very successful transit system uh, between Banff, Canmore, Calgary, Lake Louise, and a number of the hiking spots and, uh, and campgrounds. And they've become, become a leader in a rural uh, transit system. That's really exciting because kind of like the ION LRT, it shows that transit has a market outside just the big cities and it can work and that tourists will use it and people who otherwise would have been driving will use transit if it's great. Uh, so, I mean, those are some really good news uh, stories uh, to go, I guess, counterbalance all the negative stuff about uh, the TTC breaking down and being overcrowded uh, or Ottawa's LRT breaking down in the winter. It's pretty pathetic, but uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot to celebrate uh, transit-wise in this country. Opinions towards public transit often range from being dirty, overcrowded, and uncomfortable. How do we change the way we think about public transit? Well, that's a good capstone question, if you will, uh, to our conversation. So how do we make transit something that people want to ride, not just something that they have to ride? Well, it can be hard to see how we're going to get there when you look at the current state of GTC, which can be quite overcrowded and unfortunately recently has been dealing with a lot of overflow from other social issues like the housing crisis we've seen more panhandling this sort of thing but that's not inevitable uh, there was a time when the ttc wasn't overcrowded and it wasn't just because toronto was doing worse economically we've actually very, always been a very good city to live in with a strong downtown yet the transit system functioned so it just takes effort uh, to build a system that people want to ride so I'm going to go in sort of two branches for this last question. Uh, firstly, or rather I'll say that there's two sort of opinions on how do, we, how do we get people to want to ride the transit system. One opinion says that you make transit quote unquote 
uh, sexy. Uh, from time to time, you'll see a story in the media about somewhere that's building some funky bus stops or uh, a system that has a funny advertising campaign. Uh, for example, uh, Cleveland last year put out a series of ads for their transit system that mimicked car ads uh, and the way that they were presented. Uh, it was pretty clever. Um, more famously, there was that uh, Danish bus company that had the quote-unquote badass bus commercial. Uh, it, was, it was pretty funny. Uh, so efforts like that to make transit seem quote-unquote cool. Uh, the second sort of school of thought is simply forget all that. Just make transit good and people will just naturally uh, gravitate to it. If you're interested in about that topic, one of my favorite uh, commentators is a fellow by the name of Jarrett Walker. He has a transit consultancy firm run out of Portland, but also runs a very interesting blog where he talks about what's called human transit, where he talks about the nuts and bolts of building a transit system that's useful for people. He talks about things about how you should make it frequent, make it easy to use, uh, simplify the route network so that it makes sense uh, for your city. These sorts of things that are kind of the bare nuts and bolts of running a transit system, but have been proven to make people want to ride it. So those two school of thoughts are not necessarily against one another. Um, I don't think Jarrett has ever said, you shouldn't try and make your transit system look nice uh, or to compete with the car, but he's of the mind that you should simply just invest in your service and make it, make it good. I don't know what the right answer is per se. I personally lean towards Jarrett's argument. Uh, if you go to places like London, I mean, the tube is not pretty, but people use it in great numbers, and it's considered to be a symbol uh, of the city. Uh, same with the New York subway. It ain't pretty. You're going to see some stuff there that you never can unsee. But at the same time, New Yorkers love it. It's considered a symbol of their city, uh, and they wouldn't do without it. So. The TTC is not there, but perhaps we could get there. We're a big city with a heavily used transit system. We could do what London and <clears throat> New York have done, simply just invest in, in the system. So there's no, good, there's no right answer to that. I mean, ultimately, we live in North America, so the idea of having a car and a big house in the suburbs is still the sort of prime way in which people see their lives. And that's fine. Uh, but. You know, we need to look at what other places have done uh, to make their transit systems a core part of living in the city. Once we do that, I think we'll, we'll get things right and we'll reverse the negative perception that the TDC has gained over the past couple of years. Uh, and it's very important to do because like anything that people interact with, your transit system, your libraries, your schools, you want it to be, if not exciting per se, you want it to be not something that people dread uh, going to. Once you do that, you have strong public services and you have a strong, healthy society. And I think we can, we can, we can do it. All right, so how can our listeners keep in touch on the latest information about your organization? Well, I'm glad you asked. So we're always looking for, uh, for new members uh, because we have some exciting campaigns uh, coming up. Uh, this week, actually, we will be canvassing at uh, various GO stations in Toronto because uh, Doug Ford got rid of the discount, the transfer between TTC and GO. So there's, uh, there's always something going on if you're mad about the state of the transit system. So it's real simple. The website is simply ttcriders.ca. 
that's very easy. Our Twitter, at TTC Writers, it's not hard. Uh, on our Twitter, you can follow us. Uh, we also have, well, TTC Writers also on Facebook. The best way is simply to go to the website. Our blog is updated pretty much weekly uh, with what's going on uh, with our organization. And then Twitter is the other main source where you're going to find out uh, what's happening uh, with, uh, with the writers. If you're really keen, uh, you can get yourself added to our mailing list. You can do so on the website. Again, it's pretty easy. Uh, we don't spam you, uh, but what we will do is give you an idea of how you can get involved. Uh, so if you're someone who's never ever uh, been involved in some, an activist campaign before, no one's asking you to get out on the street and start talking to people, you can come to our office, we'll give you pizza, we might crack open a beer, we can do some data entry. Sounds boring, but it's not because we turn it into a party. So there's lots of ways to get involved for pretty much anyone. Uh, so I really encourage you to do so if you want to see a better transit system.